I'm Chip Granditz. And I'm Joel Parker. And this is How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show. Today is Tuesday, January 23rd, 2018. Coming up, Science on Tap, flowing right here in Boulder. begin with a look at some of the recent news in science. You may recall the news of the merger of two neutron stars first detected on August 17th by LIGO, the Laser Interferometer Gravitational Wave Observatory. That merger was also seen by many dozens of ground and space-based observatories, seeing for the first time the optical light counterpart to a gravitational wave event. The event was seemingly over in the blink of an eye. However, in an article that was published a few days ago in the Astrophysical Journal, researchers show that the afterglow has continued to brighten, much to the surprise of astrophysicists studying the massive collision that took place about 138 million light years away and sent gravitational waves rippling through the universe. The new observations, made with NASA's orbiting Chandra X-ray Observatory, indicate that the gamma-ray burst unleashed by the collision is more complex than scientists initially imagined. The new data could be explained using more complicated models for the remnants of the neutron star merger. One possibility is that the merger launched a jet that shock-heated the surrounding gaseous debris, creating a hot cocoon around the jet that has glowed in X-rays to radio light for many months. Mergers of neutron stars are among the densest objects in the universe are thought to be responsible for producing heavy elements such as gold, platinum, and silver. What lives in your dirt? University of Colorado Boulder researchers are one step closer to finding out after compiling the first global atlas of soil bacterial communities and identifying a group of around 500 key species that are both common and abundant worldwide. The new study, which appeared Thursday in the journal Science, narrows down the immense diversity of soil-dwelling bacteria to a most-wanted list that will guide future research into the study and manipulation of microorganisms that affect nutrient cycling, soil fertility, and other important ecological functions. Manuel Delgado Bacirezzo, lead author of the study notes, with this research, we have started to open the black box and are gaining a better understanding of what microbes are living in our soils. He is a postdoctoral researcher at the Cooperative Institute for Research in Environmental Sciences series at CU Boulder. Soil bacteria accounts for a large percentage of the planet's living biomass and facilitate key soil processes such as carbon cycling and nutrient availability. But despite being studied for decades, the microorganisms living in soil 
even in the soil from an average North American backyard, are still poorly understood due to a species count numbering in the tens of thousands. Most species remain undescribed. They do not match existing genomic records and have not been successfully cultured in a lab. It is amazing how much we still don't know about even the most dominant microorganisms found in soil. This according to Noah Fierra, a series fellow and co-author of the new research. As he says, many of them don't even have names yet. To conduct the study, the researchers collected soil samples from 237 different locations across six continents and 18 countries, spanning an entire range of climates from deserts to grasslands to wetlands. Then, they used DNA sequencing to identify the types of bacteria found at each site and determine which species are shared across different types of soil. The researchers found that just 2% of all bacterial taxa, or around 500 individual species, consistently accounted for almost half of the soil bacterial communities worldwide. Having been identified as both dominant and ubiquitous, these predictably common bacteria can now be targeted for future study. Now that we have this list, we can really focus our research efforts to categorize these major groups and see what they are and what they do. This according to Fierro, who is also an associate professor in CU Boulder's Department of Ecology and Evolutionary Biology. Continued research into the identity and function of soil bacteria could potentially lead to agricultural applications in the future. Eventually, knowing more about these bacteria might allow us to improve soil health and fertility, said Delgado Becurezo, who carries a dual affiliation with the Universidad Rey Juan Carlos in Madrid, Spain. There's a lot that we can do now and that we have some now that we have some tractable information. Cancer is a really scary diagnosis mainly because of the possibility of metastasis or spread to other areas. Once cancer has spread, it is difficult, if not impossible, to remove. If there is early diagnosis before metastasis has occurred, surgery is often successful in curing it, but consistent early detection has been elusive. In a paper in last week's Science, reports a test which should make the early diagnosis goal much more obtainable. A team of researchers from nine cancer centers has developed a blood test, which they called CancerSeq, that detected proteins and or genetic mutations from eight common cancer types. In a proof-of-principle design, the scientists screened over 1,000 patients with non-metastatic, clinically detected cancers. The test was positive on average 70% of the time, with sensitivity ranging from 69 to 98%. And the test's specificity was incredibly high at 98%. Only 7 of 812 healthy controls received a cancer diagnosis. By comparison, prostate cancer, which is the only type of cancer with the blood test at this time, shows a false positive rate of 75 percent. 
The test used a combination of assays for genetic mutations, which are the changes in DNA that can cause cancer, and for the protein biomarkers produced only by cancer cells. This combination allows them to identify cancers early and also to localize the organ of origin of these cancers. The test uses a procedure called PCR that amplifies DNA to much higher levels than would be found in a blood sample. The PCR means that cancer DNA, which is rare at early stages, can be detected. Another aspect of the CancerSeq test is the use of multiple testing. The researchers divided the DNA samples into multiple portions and tested each one. This replication makes the test more accurate. The test is not yet ready for widespread application. They used patients known to have cancers. The team suggests using additional molecules to increase the specificity of the test. But in the not too distant future, we can anticipate having a blood test that will screen for at least eight and possibly more cancers for about the same price as a colonoscopy now. I know which test I would go for. Funky beats, Barrow Street, walking with your dog. I see you, you see me, then we stop and talk. Later on, some cafe, thinking what you said. Children laugh, telling jokes till their eyes are red. The Boulder area has a rich culture of science as the home for several prestigious national laboratories, a thriving technology industry containing the flagship campus of the University of Colorado and various joint ventures between them. But as a science enthusiast, where might you go to find a community of like-minded people? Must you work in a lab, teach at a university, enroll as a student? Perhaps. But now, Boulder has Science on Tap, a monthly opportunity for science enthusiasts and beer lovers to come together and discover the latest and greatest research in science and technology that is happening along the Front Range. Science on Tap premiered in Boulder just last month and is meeting next on Tuesday, February 6th, at the Gun Barrel Brewing Company. With me here in the studio is Dr. Chelsea Thompson, who was instrumental in bringing Science on Tap to Boulder. Chelsea, welcome to How on Earth. Thank you for having me. Tell me, uh, what happens at a Science on Tap meeting? I guess you've had one so far. Uh, if someone were to come to one of these meetings, what could they expect? Uh, yeah, so the, the whole concept behind Science on Tap is to have a... Um, informal venue for scientists to come and discuss some of their current research, some of the things that they are most excited about, and have the public come and listen to this research and learn about some of the amazing work that's going on right here in our own backyards, a lot of the work that most people probably aren't even aware of. Um, this is not a new idea by any means. There are signs on taps around the country. There's one um, in Fort Collins, for example. Um, 
my personal experience was with a science on tap um, in Lafayette, Indiana by Purdue University, which is where I got my graduate degree. And my uh, PhD advisor at the time had done one of these events and we all went and there was a huge crowd and it was a lot of fun. And everybody was drinking beer and um, talking and asking questions and it was very interactive and very informal and the public got a lot out of it because they were actually able to interface with the scientists that are doing this work in a, in a, fun, um, in a fun setting. And so with these events, what you can expect is that um, the uh, scientists will be doing a presentation of sorts. It's usually a involves PowerPoint, but not necessarily. We may have some sort of uh, demonstrations or show and tell, if you will, mm -hmm. um, followed then by a Q&A session, some discussion. Um, and then the scientists will hang around for a little while and you are free to approach them, ask questions, strike up a conversation. If there's anything you ever wanted to know about the topic, they're there. And these are people who want to talk to the public, who are very interested in, in sharing their science. And so they are they are excited about it and they're happy to answer any questions that you may have and what is it like finding uh scientists uh presenting to the general audience uh, now scientists often are in uh, venues where they present to other scientists in a very professional sort of manner uh i know that that historically from the 19th century many of the most prominent scientists um like in the victorian age uh, were quite the showmen, and they knew how to put on quite a show and were very comfortable trying to be charismatic speakers uh, to a general audience. Um, do you have you what's it like to try to find scientists that want to bring their scientific message to a general audience? It's actually not as hard as you would think. Um, I think scientists in general have an introverted side. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, there's always the type that sort of just want to stay in the lab and keep to themselves. But there are a lot who are not like that um, and who actually crave the opportunity to do a more fun public presentation like this. I mean, speaking as a scientist myself, the conferences, they're not that fun. Conference, you know, preparing a conference talk, this is, this is not really a fun, exciting thing to do. Um, but the, the scientists that I have spoken to for doing this project are really excited to think outside the box and think about different ways to present their work um, using uh, interactive graphs and charts, videos, things like this, things that you can't do in a conference setting, and even use humor and, and show the lighthearted side of our work. And those are other things you can't do in a conference setting. And so even just beginning this idea a few months ago and shopping it around at work, I was just amazed at the positive feedback and how much excitement it generated and how many people came to me volunteering to want to do this. And so it's actually really not that difficult. And I think, I think um, a lot of scientists are really looking for this sort of venue to be able to share their excitement about their work to the public. Tell me a little bit more about the story of uh, how you made Science on Tap happen in Boulder. As I recall, you said uh, you were inspired by going to a similar event at in Lafayette in Purdue. Mm -hmm. So you're now inspired by a Science on Tap event there. Yes. Tell us a little bit about the story about how you brought it here to the Front Range. Well, so I did my grad program in, in Lafayette, Indiana. And then when I graduated, I got a job offer here in Boulder. And so I moved here and that was now five years ago, I suppose. Um, and I started looking around for a Science on Tap in Boulder because this seems like a natural place for 
such a thing. There's so much science here and there's so much amazing craft beer. Why not Boulder? And I was surprised that there was not a regular science on tap here. Um, and I sort of kind of kept that idea in the back of my mind. And then most recently, um, a few colleagues and I were at a, on a work trip in Santa Barbara, California, and went to another brewery there. And they were doing a similar science on tap uh, with the professors from uh, UC Santa Barbara. And I was... I thought about it again, and I'm like, you know what? Boulder needs this. And if it's not already existing, then I'm going to do it myself. Mm -hmm. And so that's pretty much how it happened. Um, luckily, actually, uh, my landlord knows the owners of the Gun Barrel Brewing Company. It's a relatively new brewery in Gun Barrel, and they have a very large space. And so it's really great for large events like this. So and reasonably, how, how big of a group could Science on Tap accommodate? Well, our last one last month, even though it was our first one, we had over 120 people attend, wow. which was an amazing turnout, and it was fabulous. Um, and everybody fit. We had to bring all the chairs from the front of the room into the back and some extra chairs from the back storage also. But um, we did fit everybody in there, and I think we could probably fit some more with a little more preparation. We weren't actually expecting that many people, so it was a really... Um, exciting thing to see that that many people and that much enthusiasm from the public to come out. Well, congratulations on uh, such a well-attended premier event. Well, that actually invites the question, uh, if, if there's a possibility of an, of an overflow crowd, uh, if someone listening now is interested in attending the next Science on Tap, is there some way you would wish them to RSVP or announce that they're going to come, or do they just show up at the door? Um, yeah, so after last month's amazing turnout, um, we have... We, we're trying this month to use Eventbrite, uh, which is an online uh, ticketing company, to have people sign up for free tickets. They're absolutely free. Mm -hmm. um, all you have to do is sign up for it and register. And the only reason we're doing this is just so that we know how many people are planning to be there, so we know how many chairs to put out, so we know how many bartenders to have on staff. Um, and so everybody has a really great experience. Um, um, so... The tickets are not absolutely required, but we ask people to get them. Um, and so the way we're going to be doing it for uh, this next event is that everybody who already has a ticket, has a seat, they get to go in first into the back venue. And then anybody else who shows up without a ticket will get to come in in sort of the second wave and fill in any remaining seats. And then we can add, add seats as we go. But this way, at least we sort of have an idea of what to expect as far as the crowd goes. Well, we'll mention it one more time again at the end of the interview, but for those uh, whose interest you have piqued, uh, where do they go on the internet to find, uh, do they just go to the Eventbrite site? Or? Um, it will be listed on Eventbrite, and it can be found on Eventbrite, but the easiest way to find it is to go to the Gun Barrel Brewing Company Facebook page, and on there we are listing each one of the events, each one of the monthly events, and there is a link on there to Eventbrite. It says something like, get your tickets on Eventbrite. There's a hyperlink. Um, and so if you just look for the Science on Tap events, you'll find that and some more information as far as the venue goes, the times, um, all the abstracts and the speaker bios are going to be there on the Facebook page as well. Thank you. If you've just found your dial tuned to 88.5, you are tuned to How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show. Right now I'm speaking with Dr. Chelsea Thompson, who, discovering Science on Tap in Lafayette, Indiana has brought it to Boulder, Colorado. Science on Tap is an opportunity for science enthusiasts to get together in an informal setting and hear 
the latest and greatest research in science and technology that is happening along the front range. Uh, Chelsea, give me examples of uh, what was talked about at the first Science on Tap in January. So our first uh, speaker uh, was the director of the Colorado Avalanche Information Center, Dr. Ethan Green. Um, we thought it would be very timely to have a speaker about avalanche science in January. Of course, being Colorado, you can never, never predict the weather, and it turned out to be a 60-degree sunny day. Yeah. But, you know, nonetheless, we had a, a really great talk about the uh, science and the mechanics and the physics behind avalanches and what causes snow to either um, turn into an avalanche or not. Um, and we had a, an amazing turnout of backcountry skiers and outdoor enthusiasts uh, show up for that one. And so for the the next one that we have coming up here in, I guess it's two weeks on February 6th, mm -hmm. we have a uh, atmospheric chemist that works at NOAA, who, which is uh, National Oceanic Atmospheric Administration here in Boulder. Mm -hmm. um, he will be talking about Western wildfires mm -hmm. and the smoke and air quality impacts and the health impacts of that. And that's also something that is quite relevant um, here for Boulder residents. We're all aware of the... Uh, the smoke that fills the air in the summertime from the wildfires. And, of course, we've experienced some pretty bad wildfires ourselves here in the canyons. Uh, you mentioned a contrast between a scientist preparing for this event and perhaps preparing for a, a conference in their discipline. Uh, another interesting contrast is that I've noticed that science, when they're in their professional mode, scientists, when they're professional mode, uh, they get more and more specialized. And uh, the the opportunity, I think, science has exploded so much that the opportunity to be a true Renaissance man is long since gone. Um, so this Science on Tap venue, this is a cross-disciplinary venue. Uh, so uh, how do how is that different, um, coming in and realizing that it can be not your specialty that you are very familiar with, but talking or hearing about uh, science from a, a broad array of disciplines. Yeah, I think that's actually one of the benefits of it. Um, and as you mentioned, we scientists, we tend to specialize in our own little niche area. And that's all we really read about or uh, think about or talk about is, is scientists in our own field. And so besides just reaching out to the public, one of the other um, ideas behind this was that so scientists could come and see what other fields of scientists are happening in this area as well um, and expand their, their horizons and potentially develop new connections and new networks um, and even potentially develop a collaboration, an interdisciplinary collaboration. If you happen to meet a speaker who does something that is maybe tangentially related to what you do, but it could be a really interesting interdisciplinary study in the future. For example, if you have an air quality scientist meet a doctor who would be interested in health impacts of air quality, well, now you've developed a really interesting collaboration that could potentially move into a, a project in the future. And so when uh, you line someone up to present, do they... And they, if let's say a scientist asks you about what level should they try to present at, and also this is for someone that might be listening and might be concerned about whether or not they're going to follow it, what level at which do you ask people to present at? And, and if someone is, say, a common frequent listener of this show, is that, do you think, 
and they follow along and most of the stories here is that sufficient for them to be able to follow along at the presentations at science on tap yes absolutely um these talks are not designed for um active scientists particularly they're they're designed for the general public who have i would say some degree of literacy or interest in science. And by some degree, I mean even like a high school science class where you are familiar with basic science concepts and you can follow along with that. Um, and so our, I, I tell our speakers that um, uh, science and, and graphs are great, but don't give me chemical, de- chemical formulas and mathematical derivations. That's too much. Uh, but I think the, the, the audience there is... Um, literate enough to be able to understand scientific graphs and such like that. And so don't expect anything really beyond that. It's more of a, um, to show the cool results that we're seeing and not so much uh, delve into the nitty gritty details of how we did the research or things like that. We have just a couple more minutes left in this interview. Do you want to give the listeners out there uh, some upcoming highlights, some some topics that will be covered uh, maybe not necessarily at the next one, which is February 6th, is that correct? Yes, February 6th at 6.30. At 6.30 p.m.? Uh, Yeah, tell us uh, some of the topics that you're trying to line up now. And also maybe one question maybe that I just thought of is, if you are listening right now and you have an idea for a presentation, uh, is there a way for them to contact you, or how should someone that has an idea for a presentation? Yeah, certainly. Um, so I'll start with that question first. Um, I do have a Gmail account. It's just scienceontapboulder at gmail.com, all one word, scienceontapboulder. I am actually crowdsourcing ideas. I am an earth scientist myself, and as we, as we said, that you sort of get into your niche area. So my challenge is to not completely load the program with earth scientists. I, I want to reach out to um, all variety of disciplines. So if you're listening and you are in some other discipline and you have a great idea for a speaker or you want to volunteer yourself, please email me. Um, coming up, we... Uh, have a materials engineer for March who's going to be talking about preserving historic structures from corrosion. In April, we will have Noah Fierre, who you just mentioned about the um, Global Soil Atlas. He'll be coming in April. And then um, out from that, we will have um, some speakers from the geomagnetism group at NOAA talking about the uh, Earth's magnetic field and how it affects a lot of the technology that we use on a daily basis. And beyond that, we're still looking. Well, thank you. You've been listening to Dr. Chelsea Thompson, and she's talking about Science on Tap. The next Science on Tap is February 6th at 6.30 p.m. at the Gun Barrel Brewery. Uh, Chelsea, remind me again, what is, uh, how do you go on the web to RSVP for that? Uh, please find our Facebook event page at the Gun Barrel Brewing Company Facebook page, and then uh, go to the Eventbrite uh, link and just get your free tickets, please. And you can count on How on Earth to tell you about uh, upcoming Science on Tap events. Uh, Stay tuned to How on Earth, and we will promo future events. Thank you. That's all for this edition of How on Earth. Our executive producer is Susan Moran. This week's show was produced by Chip Granditz and engineered by yours truly, Joel Parker. Additional contributions by Beth Bennett. 
Our theme music was written and produced by Josh Cutler. Additional music from David Byrne. Visit our website at howonearthradio.org to find past episodes, extended interviews, and you can subscribe to our podcast through iTunes and follow us on Facebook and Twitter. Questions or comments? Call the KGNU comment line at 303-447-9911. For How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show, I'm Chip Granditz. And I'm Joel Parker.